Today's podcast with guest Haroon Mullah goes over his life-changing technology in healthcare for people who suffer from epileptic seizures. We dive into his vision and experience as an international founder and working bicontinentally. We also discuss the challenges in healthcare solutions that have both software and a hardware component, funding sources for such healthcare solutions, and finding real people to test. Haroon, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much for hosting, David. Great. Uh, Harun, why don't you start uh, where you are currently? Tell us, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your journey to EpiAlert, um, your AI solution in the healthcare space. So, yeah. So, uh, the whole story of EpiAlert started when my co-founder's sister was suffering from epilepsy. And uh, back then, we saw uh, the problem, but more importantly, we saw the opportunity behind this problem. Because at the end of the day, behind every problem, there is a big uh, opportunity to take and a big challenge that if you can solve, you can bring value to yourself and to others all over the world. So it started back then, two years and a half ago, and we started basically with like $300. <laughs> I had a computer engineering background back then, and Firas was more of the business guy. So at the beginning, we didn't have money. We started employing interns. And then we developed our first proof of concept. We got accepted into an incubator. And then, like, after probably one year, if I, yeah, it's exactly one year, we raised our first, uh, our first round. It was a whole one year without uh, raising uh, money. But still, we have done a lot in that year, during that year. It's hardware in general, but like specifically medical hardware, is that you need to do a lot of R&D before entering the market. And not only R&D, you have to also do some compliance and uh, like need to comply to regulations in order to enter uh, the market because it's a high regulated uh, industry. So uh, until now, like two years and a half, we have raised uh, three rounds and until now we are not even on the market. So it's it's a long, it's a long road. It's a high risk, high high reward. What a story, Harun. Um, so you started off personally, and then obviously it's grown to twelve engineers on the team. Um, so I, I love the journey that you've had on this. You know, started with just three hundred dollars. You know, working at an incubator. Um, you know, let's kind of start break down that journey a little bit more. Let's do a deep dive. Um, you know, how did the incubator help you? Uh, you know, what are some of the, you know, what did you gain from that? Obviously, learning, insights, um, you know, support you've had. Talk to us about that. Well, it's kind of a funny story because uh, personally, I believe the, the most added value that we have gained from the incubator is, is the office. <laughs> Because back then we didn't have like an office, basically. So um, it was a nice uh, office downtown here in, in Tunis, in the capital. And it was uh, very attractive to employ uh, people, like even interns. At the end of the day, uh, it, it's a tough uh, industry. It's a tough path. Uh, it's a tough journey. You have to have, like, it's necessary that you get backed by uh, a bigger institution, uh, an experienced, more or less experienced institution. So it was the office at, at first instance, and then it was the experience, the mentorship. Uh, we, we were mentored closely by uh, an ex 
technology minister. So yeah, it, it was a first big step. That That's great. You know, sometimes some of the smallest things help giving you an office space uh, right downtown. And then that helps you employ, attract, retain talent. Um, sounds like that's kind of what... The, what you gained from this incubator, especially. Um, tell, t- talk to us about raising capital. You did raise your first round. Um, when did that happen? What were some key milestones that you had to get done to, you know, being able to raise capital? Yeah. So, it, to be honest, it was not uh, easy uh, for for many reasons. First reason, uh, as I said, it's... Uh, it's a hard industry. It's hardware. It's medical. Everyone is afraid uh, of this kind of uh, industry. The other thing is that it happens that I live in a country where uh, where the ecosystem of startups is not that developed, at least in comparison to other places like the Silicon Valley. So it's not really uh, the place where you can find cutting-edge technology and people. And there's this kind of culture that people believe uh, if like if what you say, if what you pitch makes sense, people believe in it and they are willing to invest directly. So we have leveraged our uh, our basically our PR. We did great uh, PR in the country because what's interesting about us is that we are doing something that's definitely not classical. So uh, we are not. Uh, a known manufacturing country uh, like Tunisia is not known for high-tech industry, but we, we are still doing something that is high-tech. So everyone was looking uh, like to us with basically uh, a surprising and admiring uh, view. So the thing, this thing uh, helped us a lot in, in, in raising capital. So it was a, it was a great leverage. So we started pitching to, to several investors until someone who didn't really care about the product but believed in, in, our, in our background, in our team, so in the founders, basically. So yeah, so it was a round of uh, 40K at the beginning, then an additional uh, 30K. Uh, it looks a small amount of money, but... In Tunisia, it's, uh, it's it's a lot of money because the uh, basically life here is way cheaper, and uh, in comparison to what startups uh, raise at uh, the pre-seed level, it's it's a lot of money. That that's great. So I've got a lot of questions, uh, you know, to, about Tunisia and you know more things about raising capital, but let's kind of st- have ask you one more question on raising capital. Was that from an investor in the U.S. or he or she from one investor or a group? Uh, Franco-Tunisian company, so it's half French, half uh, Tunisian. So they have a, an international, kind of international insights because most of their markets are, uh, are foreign markets, but also they have uh, the, the Tunisian, like the knowledge of the Tunisian uh, ecosystem. What is your advice to someone raising capital um, outside of the U.S.? You, you should approach uh, business angels and get get like you did. You shouldn't get close to institutions because 
uh, you need a lot of paperwork, you need a lot of time, whereas business angels are, are faster. And you need to try to build a kind of personal, personal connection with them. But most importantly, you need to sell them uh, the vision because everyone wants to be part of a, of a nice journey. Great. Um, what were some of the things you did on your journey to communicate that vision to these investors? Was it, uh, you know, what were some of the tools you used? How best did you communicate that vision? Uh, we were close to reference people in the country. So we were, we were pitching to people who didn't have the money to invest, but they are kind of reference in their fields. So, so what happened is that one of those references that we pitched to, he introduced us to, to an investor because he really liked our, our idea. You don't only approach investors, you approach, uh, you pitch to people, like reference people to get uh, feedback. And definitely if, if, uh, if they like your idea, they will help you in a way or another. They can help you uh, with the feedback or advice itself but they can also introduce you to people. So don't be uh, like pitch. If, if you know someone who's interesting, who's knowledgeable, just pitch them. That's great. Um, you know, they always say, you know, before you ask for someone for an investment, uh, ask them for an advice, and then you may end up uh, getting the investment from them. Exactly. As a founder in Tunisia, um, you know, talk to us about... You know, your solution involves both hardware and software. What are ways to attract talent? Do you guys work remote? Do you hire outside of Tunisia or all your engineers um, in Tunisia? T tell us a little bit about your workforce. So Tunisia is not really a country with uh, a high tech ecosystem, but it has, it has talents. Because in Tunisia, maybe we don't ex export high tech, but to export talents of high tech. So in Tunisia, we have roughly uh, 4,000 engineers that uh, are exported, basically. So they, they are uh, the brain drain uh, to Europe uh, and North America. So we have, we have uh, great talents here. And like the reason that they leave the country is not necessarily uh, money. It's usually they cannot find jobs where they can apply their knowledge. So this is a big opportunity for us. This was a big, a big thing for us because we had a complicated technology that we, we need to build. It was uh, hardware uh, with uh, by signals, sensors. Uh, it is, it's, it's not even uh, like a simple hardware. It's a wearable, so it has the connectivity uh, issues connected to a mobile app, connected to the cloud. So there was a whole complex uh, system, and uh, that attracted a lot, a lot of talents. That most of them were willing to to leave the country if they don't get employed in something that they find interesting, something that they can apply their knowledge and develop uh, their careers. Like as a policy, even for the government, they implemented uh, a startup act. One of the objective of this startup act is to make uh, founders, like entrepreneurs, founders, and uh, engineers to stay in Tunisia, like make companies here, get uh, get employed in, in startups, 
and keep this, uh, this, these talents here in the country. So we have talents, but the problem is that they are usually exported. So this was, as I said, I said again, this was a, a big plus for us. That's great. Um, what are some of the initiatives uh, that they have taken to retain talent? We all know about brain drain from these countries. Um, you know, everybody wants to go abroad, you know, live abroad and, you know, maybe go to the U.S. where it's seen as the country that's pioneering in technology. Basically, in Tunisia, in relation to technology, at least, they implemented what what uh, what's called startup act a bill that uh, basically facilitates all the legal and uh, bureaucratic procedures for startups but more importantly it uh, exonerates startups from taxes uh, for uh, like for 8 years and you have more liberty in terms of uh, uh, international currency exchange and uh, so basically you can have easily foreign investors buying in and cashing out. You don't pay the, uh, the corporate tax. You don't pay the uh, employee, like tax on employees. You don't pay customs. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge incentive. Uh, startups pay uh, tech talents more money because they can raise easily. Uh, they, pay, they don't pay taxes. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a big thing here in Tunisia. And I believe in the next five years, it will have... Uh, and an impact on the shape of of economy. So I believe that the economy will shift a lot towards technology, mainly because of of this bill. That is such a great initiative. The Startup Act sounds like that incentivizes you know technology startups, um, especially with an eight year um, no tax. Um, type of a law. Uh, now you live six months in Tunisia and six months in the U.S. in Silicon Valley, so you're bicontinental, so to speak. Tell us, what do you do in Silicon Valley? I went to Silicon Valley uh, three times until now. The, like the time that I spent uh, time the most was uh, within uh, a program with Draper University. So uh, basically, it's a program that you get an entrepreneurship education and then you have a final pitch day where you pitch your idea your startup so uh, we got uh, a full scholarship to this uh, to this program as epilert as our company and uh, on the final uh, pitch day we have been ranked uh, fourth out of uh, 75 so I, I had to pitch in front of 110 uh, like judges most of them were investors the most important thing that I, I got is the Silicon Valley standards in terms of uh, technology. And so it's, it's, actually, it's basically the whole standards of raising money, the technology, deep technology, uh, how you try to be a, a monopoly in, in your field in whatever you do. So if you, want, if you want to end up in the Silicon Valley, you have to be number one in what you do. So if we, if we see, for example, Google, Google is by far the number one uh, search engine. And there is barely no competition in that. So, and, and that's kind of the Silicon Valley culture and the Silicon Valley standard. It was full of, of learning. Uh, it was uh, full of networking. And uh, I like that place. That's why I, I will move my company there. So basically we move 
our top management there, and then we will expand our staff in the United States. Excellent. So uh, we talked about learning uh, being at Draper University. Can you share with us two key items or aspects that you've learned? There is the culture. Well, they say that you cannot learn the, the culture, you get the culture. So uh, being in that place with, uh, with lectures around technology and uh, fundraising and scaling uh, the business uh, will definitely help you absorb, absorb the culture. So culture is, is a whole thing. Second thing is that you kind of can, can visualize a, a path for, for your startup. Uh, like what what I have learned from this program is kind of path for for my startup. You know that you know David that uh, any like successful startup should end up either acquired for a good amount or uh, get, be public. So make an IPO basically. So this is another thing that I've learned this Valley. It's not that easy that you make a company and then you sell, then you become rich. It's not that easy. The average is 10 years before exiting. If it's not well spent, it's, it's a huge risk that you are taking. Excellent. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we are going to talk about having a project or a startup that has both hardware and software innovations that need to happen at the same time. I am interrupting this engaging conversation to tell you about ModStack, a digital product agency that makes this podcast possible. Struggling with staff and not sure how to get ahead? Keep hearing about the cloud and how it can change your team? Have an application that you invested lots of money and haven't seen growth? These are all questions that our team has worked on answering for years. Learn more at themodstack.com. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. Um, so tell us about your Epi Alert solution. Let's start with the solution first. What is the solution? I know it's AI healthcare. It's got a device, a bracelet. Tell us how that all ties in. Yeah, so uh, Epi Alert is basically a bracelet uh, that has uh, biosensors, but also connected to a mobile app and then from the mobile app connected to the cloud. So what it does, it's very simple. Once a seizure happens, it detects the seizure and then it alerts friends and family of the patient. But it also helps the doctor to monitor the patient. So the, the doctor can have uh, 24-7 uh, access to the data of the patient. He can see how many seizures did they face a month, a week. He can see all the biosignals uh, what happens to the heartbeat, what happens in terms of nourishment activity, temperature, and even movements. So it's a, it's a basically, there's an emergency part in it, but also there's a more of a long-term well-being for the patient. So if the doctor can see more data, he can usually uh, do a better diagnosis, consequently a better treatment. But moreover, we are trying to work on... Uh, Prediction. So, and that's where the machine learning and AI part uh, intervenes. So, once you have uh, more data, you can try to predict seizures before uh, they happen. And that would help a lot the patient in getting into a position where he is not harmed 
by, by, by the seizure. With those predictions, are there precautionary measures that the patient can take uh, to prevent a seizure? Yeah, so firstly, we can predict uh, up to two minutes before the seizure, unless we, we get really into deep machine learning and one day, who knows, you can predict the seizure one week before it happens. But usually, predicting a seizure and uh, making the patient know that he will face a seizure can help him uh, in positioning himself. Uh, so basically, if you are having a shower and you face a seizure, you can fall uh, and harm yourself badly. So the idea is, uh, is that we enable the patient to take a position. There is a, a basically a scientific position where uh, seizures harm the least. So usually seizures themselves, they are not uh, deadly. They don't kill unless they uh, exceed uh, a certain time. However, uh, when you lose conscious, because that, that what happens when you face a seizure, you can uh, harm yourself uh, in, in several ways and, and manners. So the idea is, if I know that I will have a seizure, I will take a position that I know that I will not be harmed. Great. So your solution has a hardware angle as well as a software angle, which is the mobile app, plus the back-end machine learning to sort of predict. Um, what are some of the challenges that you have faced Number one, being in healthcare, and number two, creating a solution that's both hardware, software-based. First of all, in terms of uh, proving that this device works, is something that takes a lot of time because you need to bring uh, engineers and doctors and make them work together. And it's not something that can be easy, especially at an early stage where you don't have a lot of money. So... So basically, if you can uh, pass this stage, it's already something. Then, uh, when you try to, to test your 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 device, you have you cannot test it. Like usually, uh, simple software uh, apps, you can test them just on your phone or give it to a friend or something. But but a medical uh, medical device, a wearable device that is for medical use, you need patients and you need real patients. And in order to test that, you need to have something that is called clinical trials. You cannot just bring a patient and test on him and like wait until he, he has, he faces a seizure and then say like my device works. So it has to be uh, statistical, it has to be scientific. So you need to bring uh, a bunch of patients uh, in a, like an environment that is uh, clinical and then test uh, the, the solution on them, which is something that costs money, but also you need the right people to do that. So for founders like, like us in the, their 20s, it's, it's not something uh, that's easy. The most important challenge, which is the regulatory framework also uh, puts you in a lot in a lot of hard situations. So you cannot make revenue unless you are uh, certified or compliant. So in, in, in the United States, there is the FDA in Europe, there is uh, the CE marking 
So for us, for instance, in the, in the United States, we need at least eight months to get, to get FDA clearance. So in relation to investors, you don't have traction. So it's, it's a problem and you cannot raise money. So because you're not FDA cleared, so you need to find a solution. Usually I would advise in this case to go for crowdfunding, which is something, something that we are planning to do. So uh, because FDA needs a lot of funds to get FDA cleared because you have to do this clinical trials that I was talking about. And then there's a bunch of tests and a lot of drafting. So it's a long path, it's an expensive path. Uh, and to reduce your risk in uh, getting uh, rejected, you need to put a lot of money into it. So then there's the dilemma, what comes first, the money or, or the FDA clearance? So you can, you can uh, like bypass all of this and go for crowdfunding directly where you test your product on, on real people, uh, people who are willing to pre-order or even people are, who are willing to donate for, for, for this product. And uh, that's how you leverage your, uh, your product towards investors and you can even raise money before revenue if you, if, you, if you do a good crowdfunding campaign. So yeah, so it's, it's the, the regulatory thing, it's something that is necessary because at the end of the day, the government needs to prevent uh, uh, bad products from entering uh, a very sophisticated uh, market, which is uh, the medical market. But also it's an expensive path for founders, whereas the corporate, they have, they have the funds and they have the uh, resources to back uh, this uh, so crowdfunding sounds like is a viable alternative um, or you could leverage that, um, especially when you have faced a dilemma of FDA approval versus, you know, finding capital, um, which comes first. Um, what are some of the crowdfunding platforms that you've tapped into um, and what would you what you, what would your recommendation be for someone who's looking into that as a resource? Yeah, so there's two known uh, crowdfunding platforms for for startups. There's uh, Kickstarter and there's Indiegogo. For our case, we're launching our crowdfunding campaign soon. We have we did choose uh, Indiegogo for. Uh, for many reasons, uh, like the there's the number one reason is that in, in Indiegogo, even if you don't raise the amount that you want to raise, you can still get uh, you can still get the, whatever the amount you raise. So basically, in the crowdfunding campaigns, you you set an objective. Let's say you want to raise 500k. In Indiegogo, even if you don't don't raise that that capital, you can still get an amount of, of the money that you have raised. However, in Kickstarter, you can't. Uh, then there's uh, a program that we are part of, uh, which is called the Arrow Certification Program. So Arrow Electronics, I don't know if, if you're familiar with David, it's, it's one of the big suppliers in the world in terms of electronics. They have a program 
that certifies and backs startups in terms of uh, like technical. Uh, so basically, they do a technical overview on your on your uh, product, and then they give you a certification if they they find they find it feasible and realistic. And with that certification badge, you can get into Indiegogo, and you will have more credibility uh, in front of your your backers uh, on the on the uh, platform. So this is this is another reason that we went to Indiegogo instead of uh, Kickstarter. Sounds like the Aero certificate really helped you, the technical feasibility certificate. Uh, what are some steps that entrepreneurs and startup founders can take um, to gain that certification? So it's a very simple process. You you get into uh, Aero.com and then there's the Aero certification uh, program. You apply to it with an idea. And then you you get uh, one of the technical engineers, technical support engineers from Arrow, and they validate your uh, technical materials, whatever you have in terms of design, build of materials, and they try to ask you, challenge you uh, with technical questions. If you pass, you get you get the certification, and it does not only have this Indiegogo uh, advantage; it has. Uh, a list of advantages. They can even uh, give you a flash funding. So it's a very interesting program that I advise hardware uh, startup startups to to apply to. That's great. So it sounds like that badge really helps you stand apart, um, not just in Indiegogo, but also in. Um, you know, giving you the credibility that a, that an early stage startup like yours would need. Um, with the hardware, um, you know, the first part of that challenge of finding real people to test. How did you overcome that? So, in the United States, wherever whatever you have to do, you usually have to pay or find someone to pay for it. In Tunisia, life is. Uh, more simple. So basically, uh, we we got a partnership with uh, a hospital that is specialized in neurology, and uh, so basically they are willing to offer us uh, a database of patients and then invite them to do some uh, like a survey for for epilepsy and then choose like from them choose a, a batch to to our clinical trials. So. The purpose uh, for them behind that is to to release uh, to like make a research about about uh, epilepsy, and then the motivation of of the patients is to find a solution for for this for this disease. So they're not uh, they, they didn't want to take a lot of a lot of money for the clinical trials and. Things in Tunisia are usually cheaper, so we get high added value uh, in comparison to what what was was available in the world. So if 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 a simple clinical trial in the United States would cost you a million dollars, we can do it here in Tunisia for one hundred thousand dollars at a maximum. So you pay less and get even uh, more value because here uh, we have. Uh, we have more, so basically we have uh, the best neurology center in, in Africa, 
as a, as a first thing, and then uh, you will get to have uh, people with, with different kind of epilepsy because uh, this center uh, is, a, is a nationwide center, and people from all states in the country come to it to to cure uh, epilepsy. So you can have uh, a very diversified uh, patient uh, batch. Great. Um, what are some upcoming events uh, that you may be speaking at or conferences that you are planning on going to within the next three months, Haro? So, firstly, there's there's a conference that I'm attending in in LA, which is a conference that is backed by Medtech Innovator, which is. Uh, a very a very interesting organization that um, that invests in medical technology startups uh, so they have an event in partnership with UCLA so uh, basically they they bring uh, the academic part of medical technology with the investment and entrepreneurial uh, aspect which is something very interesting uh, I also uh, will be a speaker and event here in Indonesia about how we can make the country a gateway to Africa because uh, like Tunisia geographically and historically has been always a gate to Africa, but we want to do it this time using technology. So Tunisia is basically the northest point in Africa. So we are the closest point in Africa to, to Europe, and we speak uh, Arabic, obviously, then we have French and English, so we have access uh, to both the French, Africa, and the other part of Africa where they speak more English. Uh, so I'll be speaker uh, at that event. I'll be also writing a few articles about, about entrepreneurship and uh, networking, as it is a very important skill in anyone's life, but most mostly like like entrepreneurs they have to be good networkers otherwise they, they, they won't survive so yeah so th this is mostly what, what are my, my plans uh, I'll be attending also an investment uh, summit in DC uh, it's, it's, an investment, it's a summit that is organized by the Department of of Commerce which brings foreign, foreign investors to the United States in order to facilitate their investments. And as what's interesting about the event, David, is that uh, like last year and this year they're having uh, they're having a special uh, badges and a special program for for tech companies. So as a startup, you can the capital that you would invest in the United States is not it's not necessarily money. It's it's basically your idea that you can bring to the United States and scale and raise uh, capital there, which is, which is something that I find very interesting from, from, uh, from a government, because usually governments are not known for, uh, for uh, usually they are known for classical, uh, so they do things in a classical way. So this is a very interesting uh, initiative. So yeah. What is that 
International Investor Summit, um, and where is that? What's the location? So it will be held. It will be held in DC at the beginning of June. It's called Select USA Investment Summit. Select USA Investment Summit. Yeah. Perfect. Um, Tell us about the articles, uh, you know, if our listeners wanted to follow you on those articles, how can they subscribe uh, and get notified on, on what you post? Yeah. So basically I have a, a medium uh, profile. It's Harun Maula, just like uh, how my, my name is written on any other social platform. So, uh, one of the most uh, interesting articles that it's not really my field, but it was it was kind of good insight that I had uh, lately. It's, it's it's an article on what I call moments of truth, and um, basically what what I describe here is the moments that you have where you kind of synchronize your conscious and subconscious. Uh, in a second and you realize things and you take decisions. You you sometimes take decisions based on that moment of truth, I have called it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting article that I really advise people uh, to read. And then I have articles about Tunisia and I have another article about, about the blockchain technology. So I, I kind of, uh, I'm kind of, uh, Bitcoin enthusiast, not only because I was mentored by Tim Draper, who's one of the biggest Bitcoin enthusiasts, but also I believe that it's kind of the financial uh, gold and maybe the financial, uh, it's basically financial gold, yeah, but also it's, uh, it's the future of finance. So... So uh, it's, I believe it's a big thing, and I predict a good future for Bitcoin, but no one knows uh, when. Uh, let's see when that happens. So it's related to scaling, uh, scaling the technology that uh, is around uh, Bitcoin, in terms of mining, spending coins, also the security. Well, Harun, we'll definitely post your uh, medium uh profile on our show notes so our listeners can follow you on medium as you write more stuff uh, and post newer things um Harun, it's been a pleasure talking with you thank you so much for being on the show thank you for hosting me david